we get started and reflect on the goodness of God for a second. He has been so, so good to each and every one of us. I'm sure every single one of us could stand up here and testify to the different times in our life that God has been so, so good to us. Good in ways that we don't deserve or we could hardly even explain. And yet we keep finding that he's good to us every single day. And his goodness never seems to stop because it never will stop. He is good to us. And we thank him for that. So this week we are continuing our our series uh, about, uh, in the book of Genesis, looking at Abraham and God's call to Abraham. We started last week with God's calling of Abraham. He told him to go out from his father's house in Haran, and he told him that he's going to make him, he's going to take him to a land that he will show him. He said he's going to make him into a, a great nation, he was going to make his name great, and that he was going to make him a blessing, right? He was going to bless those who blessed Abraham, and those who cursed Abraham, he was going to curse. That all peoples would be blessed through Abram, right? And so we finished last week in chapter 12, Genesis 12, verse 4. And it said, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Remember, he was 75 years old whenever he leaves Haran. And Lot went with him, his nephew. And that's where we're going to pick up uh, this week as we go. We're going to spend our time today mostly in chapter 15. But if we read the words of chapter 15 without some context, we kind of lose the importance of what God is saying to Abram. So we're going to start this morning giving us quite a bit of context, going through the major events that happened. But I encourage you, throughout this week, go back and read everything that happens between chapter 12 and chapter 15 on your own. That's going to take us where we're at. But I'm going to give a big overview today, kind of a you know, 10,000 foot view of, of the field. Abram leaves Haran and he heads toward the land of Canaan, is where Abram starts going. And the Lord appears to him while he's in that land. And he actually says in chapter 12, verse 7, he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And to be made from one man into a nation, you've got to have some children to, to repopulate, right? So it can't just be by himself. He can't just be a one-man nation. But God says, I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. And he gets into this in the land of Canaan. This is where God says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And the Bible tells us that Abram continues throughout that land, and he goes into the Negev Desert, which is just deeper into Canaan. Canaan's a pretty big area, okay? So he goes down into deeper into the land of Canaan, and then a famine comes. Now, we here in Western America don't really understand the concept of a famine. None of us in this room, I'm going to bet, lived through the Great Depression or, or the Dust Bowl out in West Texas, right? If you did, please raise your hand. That's, you're incredibly old. Um, no, I'm just kidding. No. So it's, it's a hard concept for us, though, right? When, now, think about this last year. When everybody got, we had to stay at home, and we weren't supposed to go out. We had to go to the grocery store. We weren't supposed to be out as often. We, we kind of started sweating a little bit right then, right? But what if the land had completely dried up and how we lived and survived was completely taken away from us 
and you couldn't go to the store and get the things you need. You couldn't even get water to survive off of. Situations get pretty desperate in this. So that's not something that we understand, but that's what happened to Abram while he's in this land. This is the land God said, I'm going to give you this land I'm giving to your offspring. And then a famine comes. Abraham's thinking like, did I draw the short end of the stick here? Like, this land's not that great. So what does Abram do? He goes down into Egypt. This is a problem. Did God tell Abram to go into Egypt? We don't see that in Scripture. So here's problem number one with what Abram does. He goes somewhere he's not supposed to be. He was in the land that God was going to show him. God showed him. This is the land. Something bad happens. Abram says, well, I'm going to go down here where there's not a famine. So he goes down to Egypt. There's a whole host of problems that happen while he's in Egypt. Um, But long story short, Abraham makes decisions in this part out of fear instead of faith. He leaves the promised land because of a famine, goes to Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he tells his wife to lie about being his wife. She gets taken into Pharaoh's house. A curse comes on Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh comes to Moses and says, what have you done to me? And why did you say she was my sister? And Moses, or Abram's like, well, he doesn't explain that she is. But anyways, he says, I was afraid. And so Pharaoh says, I'd given you all these things. Pharaoh dealt so well with him for the sake of Sarai, his wife. So he just tells him, hey, just take your stuff and go. Gets him out of the land. So God protects him and delivers him, even though he went the wrong way. And even though he lied while he was in the wrong place, God still delivered him out of that. Now, God protected Abram and specifically Sarai. Think about this. Abram's how old did we say he was? 75 years old? We know, we find out later his wife is 10 years younger than him. So she's 65 years old. But the scriptures tell us that she was an, a beautiful enough woman that Pharaoh wanted to bring her in and have her as a wife. Okay? And so that's why Abraham decided to lie. He's like, he didn't want to be killed. So he thought he would be dealt better with, with that. But God protects her because he's already made the promise to your offspring. I'm going to give this land. Well, if his wife has a child with Pharaoh, that can't happen. So God protects them to keep his promise, which is the important part here. Pharaoh sends them away, so they come back to the land of Canaan. Going back and forth here. His nephew, Lot, is with him. Now think about this. They left, why? Because of a famine. They went to Egypt, basically got kicked out of Egypt acquired more stuff while he was there. They come back to Canaan, and it says that the land could not support them. Abraham was a very wealthy man. He had lots of livestock. He had lots of servants. He had a lot of stuff, and so did his nephew. The Bible says the land couldn't support him and his nephew. Abram, being a nice, uh, peaceable guy, knowing that God was going to provide for him, tells Lot, listen, I don't want there to be any, any enmity between you and me. So what I'll say is, We should go separate ways. If you choose left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Abram knows he's the the eldest, right? He should be the one. If anybody chooses, he should be choosing. He's the uncle. That's the nephew. But he's offering it to his nephew. Lot looks at the land and he sees the Jordan Valley. And he says, that's where I want to go. It looks lush. That's where he wants to go. Again, remember our context. They left because of a famine. So when Lot chooses, of course he's going to pick the land that looks the most well-watered. So he goes that way. 
The problem is, is when he goes that way, he heads over into towns like Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you went to Sunday school at all as a child, you know Sodom and Gomorrah are not good places to be. But that's where Lot chose because it looked pleasing to the eye. So Abram goes to his side to settle. Um, he settles in the west and Lot goes east. And now here's a fun part that we kind of sidestep into this other story. These Mesopotamian kings, the kings from where Abram was from, start warring with the kings over in Sodom and Gomorrah in this area. You have these four kings versus these five kings. They go start doing these wars back and forth and fighting. The Mesopotamian kings come, they defeat the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and then they take Lot captive. They take all his stuff, they take his people, his livestock, all his possessions, and they start hauling them back. And Abram hears about this. One of the servants escapes, goes and tells Abram. So Abram raises up 318 trained men from his household. These are not his sons, but remember, I said Abram was wealthy. He had at least 318 trained men who were servants born in his own home that he raised up to go rescue his nephew. And he brought a couple of his neighbors with him who were his allies. They go, they chase these kings down, they divide their forces up and defeat them. It's a, it's a really interesting story, it's really cool. They defeat these enemies, he rescues his nephew, plunders those other kings, and brings all of it back. I mean, this is a, a pretty cool victory for Abram. This guy's 75 years old, and he's out there, he's out there making it happen, okay? Comes back, and he's met by a couple of kings. One of them is the king of Sodom, who head for the hills whenever he was defeated, he ran off. Another guy he meets is this king that the Bible names as uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, and he's also a high priest of God. It's a character that I'm not going to dive too far into today, but when we get into Hebrews, I can't wait to talk about this person. Melchizedek is, is a very interesting figure. But he blesses Abram, and he blesses God. And Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Okay? Gives him a tenth of everything. This is actually the first tithe in the Bible, is when Abram gives 10% to this king. This king, this high priest, that's actually the first tithe in the Bible. And Abram gives him that. And then the king of Sodom tells Abram, well, I don't really care about all the treasure, the loot. I just want the people that you rescued back, but you can keep your, your share. And Abram says, no, I, I don't want that. I'll let my allies take their share, but I don't want anything from you lest you say that you have made Abram rich. Abram was just trusting in what God had given him, but didn't mind his men having their fair share. So again, I encourage you all to go read this for yourselves. Why does this matter though? Why did I go through all this backstory telling you why he went to Egypt, comes back, him and Lot, split ways, Lot gets taken captive in a war. All of that sets up the context for what we're going to read today whenever we look at chapter 15. So if we read in chapter 15, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through Six. Again, remember what has just happened. The Abrams rescued his nephew, defeated other kings, rescued his nephew, didn't take the spoils of war, gave a, a tithe to uh, the king Melchizedek, the high priest of God. And he's come to this now. In verse uh, number one, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I 
am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God appears to Abram after he's been warring with kings. Abram's not a king. Abram doesn't even have an army. He raised up 300 trained men from his own household. But he's not a professional soldier or warrior. He just got thrown into a lot of mess. If you think you get thrown into drama or mess from time to time, he just went and fought some kings, defeated them, and rescued his nephew out of their possession. Do you think they're happy? No. Now think about this also too. Right now, the king of Sodom and them love him because he helped them out. Do you think they didn't see him as maybe a potential threat one day? If Abram becomes too powerful and too wealthy, he'll become a threat to us. They liked him when he helped them out. But God says to him, fear not. And not just fear not, but fear not, I am your shield. If we remember when we did our series a couple of weeks ago we finished in Ephesians we talked about putting on the the armor of God in in that scripture in Ephesians 6 verse 16 it says that in all things take up the shield of faith and today we're going to see a parallel between Abram's faith and the shield that God is for him literally God fights for Abram he protects him and he delivers him from all things. And, and this is a real shield of war. A lot of times we think of God being a shield for us. We're just kind of hoping he'll defend our honor or defend our name. Abram was actually having to depend on God to defend his very life. A little bit more drastic than what we face on the day to day. And God also promised him, he said that your reward shall be very great. But notice Abram's response here when we look in verse 2. He has a question. He says, oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Sometimes we read these stories and we oversimplify these interactions between God and man. We say, well, why would he even question God? If God says it, that settles it, I'm done. Right? We, we like to think that way. But really, how many times do you question God on things? How many times do you ask God to clarify things for you? When God has already told him, I'm going to make you a nation. He's 75 years old and he's childless. God says to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. He's still 75 years old and childless. God keeps making these promises to Abram and he's still 75 years old and childless. So Abram's question to me is not a bad, it's an honest question, right? And all he's asking God, he's not asking God for something God didn't already say he would give him. Abram didn't ask God to make him a king. God said, 
to your offspring. Abram saying, God, where are my offspring? He's really looking towards the words that God has already said, believing and hoping in them, and he asks him about that. Abram wants an heir more than anything. He doesn't care about the reward. We've already seen him give up lots of treasure. He could have taken it from the spoils of war when he defeated the other kings. He could have taken his share when the uh, king of Sodom offered it to him. But he's already given a tenth of everything to uh, King Melchizedek. These possessions, these money, these things don't matter to Abram. He wants the promise that God gave him. An offspring, an heir. And he's asking about this because without a son, this is what he mentions, that, that the, the heir of his, his home will be Eleazar of Damascus. A man born in his home, a servant born in his home, will become his heir. It won't be his own son. And God tells him, he says that your heir will be your very own son. If we look in verse 4 here, God says, This man, Eleazar of Damascus, will not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. Now I mentioned last week, as we're reading the Old Testament, we need to see the truth of these stories. These literally happened, they are real, they are true, but if we only see them for that, we're missing the big picture. If we don't see the parallel to Christ, if we don't see the shadow of Christ to come, if we don't see the promises of God yet not yet fulfilled in the Old Testament, we're reading it with one eye shut. So as we read this, we need to look for and see Christ in all of these promises. He says that the son, your son, your very own son shall be your heir. Now if you think about it this way with Christ and with God, the son, who is the heir of all things belonging to the father, is his very own son. The one who inherits everything that is the father's is his son. Our father only has one son and one true heir. We look at humans. Humans' sons come from their human fathers. My human son shares my human nature that I, that I have with him. He shares in that nature. But in the same way, the divine son shares in the divine nature of the father who sent him. Now, Jesus is not a created being. Jesus has always been God. He'll always be God. But what it is in the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have decided to submit to one another. Jesus the Son decided, I'm going to go fulfill the will of God the Father. God the Father decided, I'm going to send my Son to go to the earth to save those people. They mutually submit to one another to fulfill their divine and perfect will. And so that is what God is saying here is that his true heir is his true son. And that can only be Jesus Christ. He only has one true heir. But the good news is that for all of us who are born again into him by the work of the Holy Spirit through faith, we become co-heirs in Christ. God took one man, made an entire nation out of him, and that's what God is doing through Christ Jesus as well. He's taken one man and created for himself an entire people who are holy and blameless and redeemed, whose shield and salvation is none but God alone. 
These are the people who will dwell with God and the king among his people because of Christ. And so as we read God's promises to Abram, we need to continue to look for and see Jesus in all of these things. Because Jesus is the fullness of every one of these shadows that we see here. And in verse 5, God shows how he's going to fulfill this promise. He brings him outside and says to him, look to the heavens and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Basically, he's saying, look at this. You want to know your offspring? You're saying, I don't have an offspring. God says, your very own son, one who literally comes from you. I'm not going to get into the literal language of that. But it comes from Abram. Is going to be your heir. And your sons, your offspring are going to be like the number of stars. Who could count the number of stars? Only God. But this isn't the first time God's done this. Back in chapter 13, again, go back and read this this week. Back in chapter 13, God already showed him how his offspring would be. He says that they will be like the dust of the earth. Who could count the dust of the earth? God. But I want, again, think about Christ. Think about the gospel in everything you read in the Old Testament. When God made man, what did he make us from? From the dust of the earth. And what did he do to that? He breathed life into us. And man became a living creature. When he says, your descendants will be like the dust, He's not just talking about a physical lineage of people, but he's also talking about a new birth, a new life that he's going to give people, like he did in the first creation, in the physical, when he breathed into the dust. But when he's talking about this promise, he's talking about breathing in a new spiritual life into people. And that's what he does here as we look at these stars. He shows them this is an impossible number of stars. But as we see them, what do stars do? They shine. And so do those who are born again into Christ. We shine the life and the light of Christ into the darkness. And God is showing these promises to Abraham both in the physical, but also in the spiritual. We can't just read this one And miss out on everything that pertains to Christ in the Old Testament. He's pointing us to him the entire time. And these promises also show us the nature of God by the nature of his promises. When he gives, he doesn't give just... just God doesn't just do the minimum. He never does just the minimum. He goes far beyond what we can see or count or comprehend. When he gives, he pours out and he pours out and he pours out. The plan that he instated from before the world began to become one of us, to die for us and to live for us that we might live in him, that wisdom goes beyond our understanding. His mercy, we can't even fathom why he would ever choose to be merciful to us. And then his grace is just inexplicable. And yet we live and walk in that every single day. But here's the best part of this whole passage. In verse 6, when it says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Last week I mentioned that faith is the channel that God uses to bless 
us through faith. And we see that here in Abram. As we turn away from ourselves, we are turning to God. And as we turn to him, he receives us and takes us into himself because he knows we have no defense. He knows we have no shield. We have no strength. We have no life of our own. So when we look to him, he is all of that for us. He gives all of that to us freely. And this isn't just new birth. We get obsessed with getting the conversion in church, which is a wonderful thing. Bringing the dead to life is is an incredible, incredible goal to have. We were told to go do that. Go and make disciples, right? But we are falling short if we just stop at the new birth. There's a whole life to live after you're born again. And if we just obsess over getting the decision and getting the new birth, we're missing out on everything else that happens afterwards. The story is just beginning when we talk about being born again into him. It's just the start. But then living and walking and growing in him. But Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So I want you to consider the promises of God real quick. As you read the promises of God in scripture, do you believe them? Do you believe that the Lord is your shield, that he's your shield? Do you believe that he has paid for every single one of your sins for all time? Do you believe that Christ is sufficient to bring you out of death and into life? Do you believe that you've been raised with him? That you've become a child of God and that you are seated with him in heavenly places? Do you believe that all things work for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes? Do you believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? As you read the scriptures, do you believe God? Do you believe that every bit of this is absolutely true in your life and that you live and walk in this now and forever? Remember, Abram believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. If you believe God, then you walk in Christ's righteousness. If you believe God, you are righteous. If you believe God, if you believe in Christ Jesus, you receive his righteousness and you live in that. So the question is, do you believe God? Church, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I I, I ask each one of us to examine our hearts today. Those of us who have, who know you, those of us who love your son, Jesus, those of us who believe in him, God. We've come to know him and to trust in him and have been born again into him, God. But maybe there's a few areas in our life that we haven't, walked in belief yet show us those things God walk with us through those things and to
to those who don't know your son at all, God, who have never believed in his name. Lord, I pray that you would move in this room in such a way to show them the truth about who you are and what you have done for them and who you will be in their life if they will simply look to you by faith and believe in the name of your son, Jesus. Father, help each and every one of us to trust you, to walk in your ways, God, to believe your promises, to know that everything that you said is absolutely true. It is yes and amen and will come to pass. And I pray that you will continue to help us all as we go throughout our lives, God, as we leave this place, as we go into our homes, our schools, our our jobs, everywhere we go in the community, God. Help us to walk by faith in your son, Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. At this time, we're going to move uh, into a time of invitation. So Emily's going to